The world of drug development has shifted radically in the last several years. It seems that every week we're hearing about a fledgling biotech company being acquired by one of the global giants, or a new blockbuster product that's changed the marketplace forever. But what's behind those changes? And even more importantly, what does the future of medicine look like? Hello and welcome to DataPoint, the podcast about all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Mike Ray, CEO of Idea Pharma, a pharmaceutical innovation firm who, for the last several years, has published its rankings of the most innovative pharmaceutical companies. Join us as Mike and I talk about what it really takes to be an innovator in the pharmaceutical world, and Mike introduces us to the concept of connectomics. Mike, thanks for being with us on DataPoint today. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. I have been uh, eager to have this conversation since we met in San Francisco last month uh, at the J.P. Morgan conference. I'm I'm curious, how did the conference go for you? It couldn't have been better. Um, I think we met tangentially because uh, we did two things at the at J.P. Morgan. One was we have a a panel that we typically host there every year, which is the Future of Pharma panel, which is a kind of off J.P.M. Mm-hmm. panel. But mm-hmm. for the first time, we combined that with an indie rock uh, show. So we did the panel, um, all female, and then went on and had the rest of the evening with uh, three of my favorite bands in the indie rock space playing at my favorite venue in San Francisco. So it couldn't that, have been a better Venn <laughs> That diagram does sound funny. pretty ideal. Well, yeah. just out of curiosity, what is that favorite venue? Uh, so that's the Independent in San Francisco, uh-huh. which... Uh, I'm going to say it's kind of my favorite because my wife loves it because you can sit down at the side and, they, and there are people that will come around with trays and sell cocktails to you while you're in the concert. So, <laughs> nice. so it ticks all the boxes. But one of the great things was there was a, um, uh, on our panel, there was a, a lady called Jan Horanjeff who works mm. with Savvy Co-op. And um, yep. uh, we were inviting you know views from the kind of patient side and she showed up, uh, you know, normally and then went backstage and then she came out for the panel wearing a hospital gown um which was meant to illustrate the kind of role of the patient at a conference like jp morgan um but what a stunt that was because that kind of hit uh all of the media uh it was huge on twitter huge on linkedin uh, cnbc yep. had it as one of their five highlights of the week so you know from a from, from a kind of small out there indie rock uh, uh, future of pharma panel to this to, to CNBC, it, uh, it, it certainly changed our outcomes. That was definitely the most viral moment of the yep. conference, and it was really not even at the conference. In fact, um, as I was arriving, yeah. that's what I was seeing because uh, I nice. came a little late and I thought, "Wow, we are off to a big start here." <laughs> well, I think that I, I suspect JP Morgan aren't worried. <laughs> about these kind of events but um uh, you know it's a bit like south by when i go to south by it's all the unofficial stuff that's more interesting. that's right it's the yeah. ecosystem that forms around the uh, the core exactly. conference that keeps yeah. things interesting it keeps everyone entertained yeah. absolutely so i wanted to talk a little bit about um Obviously, pharma innovation is going to, I think, be the key for our conversation. But before we get there, I would love to introduce listeners to you. Um, I'd love to, if you could give us a little bit of your background and just some of the signposts that pointed you towards where you're sitting today 
you know, leading a, uh, a pharma innovation firm? Yeah, um, I think the signposts are pointed here are easier to look at once you've gone through them. I think that uh, like, like so many stories, it's best told in reverse. Um, so we, um, you're right, I mean, we are an innovation firm. We focus really on, I'm going to call it path to market strategy. So you know, how you take assets from preclinical or phase one through to commercial return with you know, a look at the clinical, the, the regulatory and the commercial um, design requirements all the way back in in, in that early phase. Um, but the reason that we did that was we used to do um, a lot more, I'm going to call it positioning, value proposition strategy development. But you know, the biggest issue that we had was that it was always too late. You know, someone had already mm-hmm. done something that narrowed your range of movement. You know, they might have made a choice on the indication or the patient uh, endpoint or, you know, the formulation or the device or all of those things uh, someone would have decided about something without necessarily understanding the dependencies or the interdependencies that they had just locked for everyone else um, yeah. so you know as we wanted to go upstream and upstream and upstream to the point that you could make a difference um, we started going back to some of the things that we'd done you know way back you know working on some Volta to turn it into a pain drug or you know, working with Avastin and Roche back in the days when no one knew what a, um, you know, anti-angiogenic was. Um, so the kind of roots of, um, y- you know, do you make a difference to drugs if you do better work uh, kind of led, um, I want to say 10 years ago, to a question that we asked ourselves, which was if you gave the same molecule, the same compound to two different companies, would they be equally successful? Mm. Um because you know we looked at the industry behaving as if like molecules self-determined you know we took 10 years out five years out we try and you know forecast a molecule into a, an opportunity and we said, well, that's that's such an odd thing to do um so the question everyone felt the answer was no um but we wanted to say well if that's true can we measure and, and kind of quantify and qualify what that means to do better with a drug mm-hmm. um so we used the classical definition of innovation, which was, you know, return on invention. So nice if you've got a pipeline, even better if you can get it to patients and have them want it and have physicians want to write scripts um, and pay for it and all the other things that uh, are, are critical. And as it turns out, you can measure, you know, relative performance of two companies. And as it turns out, 30 companies on a on an index like that. So essentially the innovation index set out to provide a ranking of the, the, the biggest 30 companies for their ability to launch their pipeline successfully. Um, and, you know, we did that and we thought it was just for our own interest. And then, mm. you know, we published the ranking and, and J&J came top. And the first people to ask us how they could improve next year were, strangely enough, J&J. You know, we got a, <laughs> got a letter from, from Paul Stoffel saying, Look, thank you, but we were interested in knowing how to improve. So we're like, okay, that's, uh, that's a really good sign, actually. I I felt that was an important picture of uh, humility that they that it got them where they were. Actually, you know, that uh, desire to learn, that desire to improve, was a key signal to me. But uh, you know, we were at that point were looking on the outside of uh, mm-hmm. organizations like that. Um, so we realized actually there's some utility in this. Uh, we didn't start out with a view about you know this is the best way to do it. This is the only way to do it. You know, companies clearly have been successful employing different strategies, um, but it's been this uh, you know 
often confounding you know companies that you think are you know boring and not doing anything turn out when you do the review that you know they're actually doing a lot of good stuff they're just not shouting about it or hmm. vice versa right some companies that are talking a lot are doing very little of any value um so yeah so that um you know that led to us you know i guess you know we're in our 10th year this year and april will be the 10th um um, annual index that we that we publish um, as as we go back. Um, so you know along the way, you know I started as a kind of strategy consultant, but then we've kind of you know just started saying no to more stuff and focusing on really hmm. this sweet spot of making sure you add value. And then you know it couldn't be a more interesting time. You look at Optivo Keytruder, which almost is the perfect case study for that question, which is if you gave the same two drugs to two different companies at the same mm-hmm. time. Would they be different, you know, differentially successful? And there's a case study playing out in front of our eyes. You know, uh, Optivo generated what eight, ten billion more than uh, Keytruder in the first few years. So the curves are crossing this year. You know, you couldn't have predicted that from the molecules. So you have to look at, you know, what the people in those companies did or didn't do uh, uh, so- along the way. So let's dive into the let's dive into the detail a little bit. I'm I'm really curious, sort of as you go back into the organization, and I'm I, I for most of my career have worked sort of at the at the end of that funnel as well, which sounds like sort of where you started. But as you go back deeper into the organization, you know, what are some some of the things that you've seen that seem to be consistent traits or behaviors or structures or cultural elements that tend to make one company successful where another may not be? I think um, it's, there's a mixed picture, but I think if you pull out some of the highlights, I think companies that have what, what we would call tacit knowledge of a marketplace. Um, so you think classically Genentech in oncology 20 years mm. ago, you think uh, Gilead in antivirals five years ago, um, you think some of the rare disease companies that have you know been inordinately successful vertex and cystic fibrosis for, for example mm-hmm. i think they don't necessarily realize that the tacit knowledge that the senior folks bring to decision making makes a big difference so when you know roche genetech tried to get out of oncology into you know they try to get into diabetes ophthalmology you know uh, psychiatry mm-hmm. at that point the senior folks are learning by being told stuff by the teams you know they don't have any you know innate knowledge to go to of having understood those markets so some of the decisions are off right and um you know they can be sold on something or they can be put off something so i think that's a theme and you go well that's a very human you know characteristic right so you know you know with what you do you know someone will go to you and expect a depth of expertise which would mean you could answer a question quickly that you wouldn't have to ask someone else about so that's been important. And then the kind of you know, other things are, you know, there's been a swing towards oncology. There's been a swing towards, um, you know, either diversity or, or, or convergence around some therape- therapeutic areas. So um, I've always rejected this idea that there's such a thing as an average because you look at our industry, you know, some of the companies in the top 30, uh, I think still, there's one or two companies there that haven't had any approvals in the last five years. But yet you have a Novartis that, you know, in 2019 had more approvals in one year than any company has ever had. Um, so, mm. you know, this heterogeneity 
is really interesting. You know, you look at you know Nevada's plan for set, plan for diversity. Uh, AstraZeneca did the same. You know, they deliberately set out to uh, embrace some uncertainty within the portfolio. Um, so I think those companies that are learning organizations that you know look at the phase you're at and say, what can we learn here? What's important? You know, how do we talk to physicians? How do we provide a value proposition? How do we talk to payers and you know deal with this mm. early on so that we're launching commercially successful products? Um, you know, those organizations have tended to do better as well. Um, and clearly, you know, those, uh, you know, the U.S. is an interesting market for in, in, in that regard, that it's, it's almost easier to be commercially successful in the United States than anywhere else. Hence the, you know, the, the growth of the industry within the U.S. Sure. Um, but yeah, I know it's, um, you know, you know the, the great thing is if you, if you retain that curiosity about how the, how things work, you know, A, it continues to surprise and amuse you, but it kind of often removes those prior, you know, prejudices that you have about, you know, how things work. But it does remind you that humans are, are incredibly important here too. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting for me as I, as I listen to you describe some of those qualities in a way, at least on the surface, they seem almost contradictory to each other. You know, um, yep. you know, the passive knowledge associated with deep experience, both clinically uh, and mm. from a marketplace perspective in an area, but yet at the same time, the desire to do continuous learning. Mm. Uh, and I wonder how much those two things play off one another, how much the actual tension created between them can, be, can provide its own value. I, yeah, maybe no, I'm just talking insight. nonsense, but no, no, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna double down on what you said. So that is equally a problem for some of those companies. So you know, Gen, I mentioned Genentech 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at Genentech Roche now in oncology, I don't think they have anything like that uh, degree of insight uh, into the way the market works. You know, they've been successful. They had Herceptin, they had Avastin, they had Rituxan, they had the, you know, the still some of the biggest uh, drugs that the industry's seen in oncology. Um, but the people didn't change, the mindset didn't change, and also they started protecting what they built. You know, so mm-hmm. if you imagine an Apple building the iPhone 3 and then spending the next 10 years, 20 years telling us that it was the best thing that we need. Um, you know, they didn't, you know, and, and actually everything you looked at then is a threat to the iPhone 3, then, then that's the way that some of those companies have behaved. So um, I think often they become successful knowing the way that it was. They don't necessarily right. know the way it is. And I think that sometimes you don't see companies refreshing the, um, the kind of water enough uh, to allow what you just said to, 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 to work, which is so they understand the way the market was. Look, you know, Roche, Genentech, Mist the immunotherapy wave, they missed a lot of the other oncology waves, mm. possibly because they had their eyes in the rear view mirror instead of the, the kind of forward mirror. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's an opportunity and a threat, but you know, just, just as a you know, quick anecdote, we, we spoke with a company a couple of years ago and they were just considering, like, should we put this, co- this combination in one vial? And they did a, what I'm going to call a sort of $2 million business case study with a consultancy that we saw. And um, when we spoke to one of the oncologists that we know, he said, well, you don't even need to ask. He said, look, you know, if anyone has ever been in an infusion suite, they know the way that an infusion suite works, which is you come in, you get the dose, that's two hours, 
then you've got to wait two hours and then you do the next thing. So if those patients don't show up at eight in the morning, they don't get the combination. Mm-hmm. So he said, this is really, this is really easy. You put them in one vial, we put them in one, put them in one uh, tube and they get them. They can turn up anytime. So he said, if anyone had even been in an infusion suite, they wouldn't have needed to ask the question. And I think it's that kind of thing that, um, sometimes we miss is they might know the data tables. They might know the, um, you know, they might know their own organizations, oncology departments, but if they don't know what the real world, real world looks like, then sometimes they can miss the, uh, the kind of obvious. Wow. And on that thought, uh, let's take a quick break, but we're going to be right back with Mike Ray from Idea Pharma. All right. We are back on data point. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and we're talking today with Mike Ray. Mike, when we went into the break, we were just talking about some of the things that uh, apart from the molecule can help a, a company to succeed or fail. And I guess I'd like to go a little deeper there in terms of the way you see the future going. Um, you yeah. know, we've seen lots of interesting trends in terms of, you know, the rise of tons of little biotechs uh, who are doing interesting things. We've been hearing a lot of buzz about things like digital therapeutics, but I think we're probably, you know, getting to uh, maybe even a low point on the hype cycle there. Tell us about some of the things you think that are going to help to make companies in this industry really thrive in the future. Um, so there's, that's a really interesting set of questions. So, um, if you, <laughs> I don't, um, I don't, I don't believe in asking just one question. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'll probably have forgotten the first one when I get to, the, <laughs> to, to my second answer. Um, so I think there's this interesting thing. If you look at the stats on, uh, the last couple of years at the FDA, so I think 2018, 19 represented the first time that more companies from outside the top 30 uh, had approvals done from inside the top 30. Um, and, and for me, that tells us, that tells me two things. One is we always knew that discovery and R and D was going on there, you know, that, that large farmers buying this stuff and bringing it in house. But what that tells me is that they're starting to not bring it in house. And those small companies are going forwards, uh, as, you know, potential, you know, commercial entities in their own right. And I like mm-hmm. that, that, that idea of, um, you know, more competition, more plays, potentially more people doing more interesting things. Um, so, you know, and actually if you go into rare disease, if you go into, you know, smaller spaces, you can easily imagine how you become a commercial organization. Um, and, you know, we need to remember that sometimes all it takes is, you know, Gilead became the monster that they are with one drug. You know, AbbVie yep. had a huge run with one drug. So um, I think that's an important theme is that the biotechs don't need the partners who they, uh, you know, used to need uh, on the way through. So if those biotechs don't have a goal of, you know, build and exit, if they have a goal of going all the way, then, you know, I hope that we see some different kinds of companies come through. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the different modalities, I think there's, you know, a phenomenally exciting time if we can get this right, which is that there are a lot of companies doing lots of, you know, you say digital predictive analytics, they're doing, you know, uh, you know, nano forming, uh, you know, molecules. Um, and I think there's this potential um, risk to the large pharma companies, which is they remain relatively impermeable to this stuff. So, mm. you know, if you have an interesting technology, you might go through the, the wrong division to assess whether it can provide any value. You know, you might be looked at as a single technology player. 
um, you know, predictive, predictive analytics or AI might be evaluated by your digital guys instead of, you know, by the people that could actually unlock the potential. Mm-hmm. But what if you needed to have thought about the device, the diagnostic, the, the predictive analytics, the, um, you know, all of those things before you embark upon a clinical program or you rescue a, a failed drug with some of that thinking? Because um, I think that, you know, I heard someone in Sweden call it connectomics uh, recently, this idea that you might need to unlock the potential of several technologies, you know, interdependently. Um, which we all feel is part of the future because we've seen, you know, Tesla not owning most of its own technology. We've seen Apple, mm. you know, combining a bunch of stuff before it takes a product forward. Um, that feels exciting, and that gives, you know, some of those small players a way to a way forward, which is maybe talking to themselves before they talk to the large pharma companies. Because, mm. you know, I, I can tell you that the, no one at those large pharma companies has the kind of vision across those technologies. Um, I like the I like the concept of connectomics and i kind of like the word as well Mm. um yeah i'm curious about how far you take that you know is that you know are you looking at connections between certain mechanisms of action or Mm. delivery platforms or you know how how far do you go with that yeah so i mean we were just doing some speculating for example of you know we've been limited largely to you know oral or you know putting something in the mouth and hoping that it gets to the blood uh, at some point and kind of, you know, trying to survive that, that kind of hurt, those hurdles that, that the body presents or you inject it, you know, either you know, subcutaneously or straight into the veins, again, hoping. So, you know, that's created a paradigm where we kind of look for steady state or, you know, but what if you wanted a homeostatic drug to, you know, work with the body when it needs it and not when it doesn't? So, you know, we've tried implantables before, but they haven't really worked. Maybe they haven't worked because the technology wasn't there. Maybe they were the right idea at the wrong time. And you needed a, you know, an insulin pump that isn't carried on the outside of the body, but that's carried inside the body with, you know, uh, you know, nano four molecules on a, on a, on a chip that's controlled by a, an external device that uh, works with the pancreas or with, uh, you know, uh, the kind of blood glucose to, to kind of figure this stuff out. Um, well, all of that's possible, right? You could do that today with what's uh, with what's available, but there are no large pharma companies doing it, uh, and, and then you have to say, well, why not? And then you've got two tensions because they're making loads of money from the drugs they have, um, so they can keep pumping them and raising prices. But mm-hmm. if you want to be a different kind of player, and this is potentially where the Amazons and Googles may go, is to is to try and put together technologies that enable pharmaceuticals to do better work, you know, where they needed. Um, and that's just one idea, you know, that was, that was one riff on, you know, if you just put these three things together. So you know, it feels like this enormously potent time of convergence, but, but not really going through the traditional players. It may well be that the Spotify's and Napster's that, you know, our industry needs are waiting to, uh, to kind of, you know, come forward uh, and do this for us. Interesting. And I'm, I'm going to close us today, Mike, with a question about Idea Pharma, um, mm-hmm. because it's occurred to me as we're talking to you, you know, you referenced the fact that after your first invention index was published, the number one company, J&J, called and said, hey, based on what you've seen, what do you think we could do better? And certainly mm-hmm. that's, I guess, typically the ideal for most firms uh, that exist in a consultative or advisor, advisory capacity is that 
people would recognize expertise that they would contact you and say, I have a problem I need to, I need some help solving. But it also seems to me that in the place where you're sitting, where you're evaluating all these um, early stage, not only molecules, but companies, uh, processes, delivery mechanisms, it seems to me as though you might have the ability to be a little bit speculative in terms of the way that you actually choose your clients. I'm curious how much that is a part of your process at Idea Pharma. Obviously, you're not the biggest company in the world, right? You have to be selective to some degree. How does that play into your your business environment? Yeah, I wish that we were as smart as you as you make us sound <laughs> but uh, um we we have this kind of natural selection so we we have attitude which tends to mean you know we provide challenge and not everyone wants that right so some people just want mm-hmm. you know consultancies to do as they're told we're not really one of those so we mm-hmm. there is this kind of natural selection of um of the right kind of clients and then we we definitely have a uh a kind of chemistry question that we ask ourselves you know do the, does the team want to do great work because you know we like to you know we we work with eight of the 15 biggest launches of the last few years and that's not because we're large it's because we've been lucky enough to pick people who wanted to do great work and we found each other uh, you know, by some stroke of luck um but you're right you know the, the, i mean there are some companies that we just don't work with because they lack ambition or they lack the right approach to you know to 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 the work but you you know we get we get to push those people that want to learn they want to they want to you know do things better uh they want to question themselves you know and there's you know so, so for example if you take two companies and almost give them the question that we asked before if you give the same molecule to two different companies one of the questions we ask those companies well what if you gave the same product to two different teams within your organization mm. you know which already feel scary for some people right because a lot of companies are set up to be nice to each other and uh, right uh, but you do know that one of those teams is going to be better than the other and surely you would want to pick the team that's better than the other so actually as we've kind of evolved we've also said that you know we're not necessarily right about any of the things that we say but we have to be as creative and actually there's a lot of talent sitting within the teams at those at, mm. at those clients that we can unlock you know just by you know having them think differently about the about the challenge ahead so um i'm going to say we've been very fortunate you know we've been able to you know been able to work on the optivos and the okubuses and mm-hmm. go all the way back to the avastans and so forth but um i think sometimes you make your own luck uh, a little bit by you know potentially being challenging by you know publishing stuff that you know mckinsey wouldn't put out there um right you know, so <laughs> it's a uh, um you know, so fingers crossed. Where you know, we we also have this kind of rule that you know, if we don't think we're going to enjoy doing it on a Monday morning, um, then we won't take it on. So. That's a great rule. That's a great rule. Well, Mike, I am so grateful for you spending your time with us today. It has been uh, every bit as educational and fun as I as I expected it to be. So thanks so much. And I'm in our show notes today, we're going to have uh, links to Idea Pharma's website and some other ways to get in touch with you. Um, so if you're interested, definitely check out the show page. And uh, Mike, just thanks for being here. Best of luck. And uh, I look forward to following your work uh, in the future. Well, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to ask you more questions, Greg. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Next I, time. I that we'll get a rerun here. Sounds great. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point Podcast. 
If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time.